this is author, blogger, producer, and podcaster Bobby Osinski. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From music technology policy, talking merch cut blues, hashtag my merch, a guest post by Jackie Vinson. And from music business worldwide, people really like music, but the music industry lets everyone else capture the value. And for music business worldwide, music's addicted to the monthly active user metric, but it tells us nothing. Mm. Jay, we've got so much to talk. We say this every week, but man, we've got a ton to cover. So we are excited. We are ready to rock. We are glad you're here, of course. And it's time to hit the play button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jackie Vinson, and we'll be hearing from her in just a moment. All right, Jay, here we are again on a balmy, hot uh, Saturday for us here in SoCal, but it's good to see you, brother. And yeah, good to see uh, you. as per usual, we have been chatting up for a good half hour, a little bit more, uh, talking about our weeks and yeah, uh, lots going on, lots going on. And boy, there's just some great stuff in the newsletter and I mean, we should we should kind of review. It's really hard for you to decide what you and I are going to talk about because you have oh, yeah. so many great stories every week that are in the newsletter, yeah. And and it's it's really hard to choose because it really all is so fantastic. It's, it's an embarrassment of riches. I had an artist manager um, call me when the newsletter hit and said, "Wow, a lot of good stuff <laughs> this week," and you know it's like a treasure hunt each week, but. 
the industry is changing and evolving so fast. And, and we're just trying to stay on top of all of this, you know, with uh, what's going on in the ticketing world and with AI and with vinyl and all of these things. And, you know, this last week I attended, and I know you did too, um, Bobby Osinski had three different webinars on artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I got to uh, attend those. It was really fascinating, learned a lot. Um, we should have him pop on and, and talk to our audience about some of the things that he's learned. You know, he's reviewed, you know, like a hundred different AI platforms. A lot of it is, you know, on the recording side, uh-huh. uh, engineering, mastering, producing, but not all of it. Um, there's a little bit of something for everyone, but uh, he did a great was, job, uh, great yeah. job. And it was really interesting. Like you said, it was certainly focused on on the on basically on the creation side of things but it's important to know all that stuff and uh yeah. and really i mean he he is relentless in his pursuit of knowledge in that space and oh yeah he did a great job it was really interesting and i learned a ton an absolute yeah. ton and yeah, yeah it was good really job. well attended so great job bobby we'd love to have you back on uh to talk to us um, you and I, before we hit uh, record, I was telling you about um, our fr- our mutual friend, uh, Gigi Johnson. Um, I had breakfast with her yesterday, and we sat there in the restaurant for two and a half hours. And we could have yeah. sat there another two and a half hours. If you don't know who uh, Gigi Johnson is, um, I met her, you know, when she was at UCLA. She was there for like, I don't know, 12 years as an instructor um, with the UCLA uh, Herb Albert School of Music. She has this great uh, podcast, uh, Innovating uh, Music. Um, but she's a managing partner at uh, Maramel. You know, it's like media and future tech and uh, president of Rethink Next. You know, that includes the Amplify Music Initiatives. Um, so much stuff. But uh, you and I met with her at the Music Tectonics Conference and, and had lunch. And it's it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with her because she's a oh, force of nature. Well, and I, that was the first time I had met her in person. And it was the same thing. We just sat there and yeah, we, were, we had Mexican food, as I recall. <laughs> and we were just, I mean, it, you know, we had to kind of tear ourselves away and get back to the conference. But yeah, she's uh, she's a hoot. And again, a super knowledgeable person and and been around the business for a long time and Every time we connect, it's uh, yeah. it, it's just, you know, you learn something. And it's so nice to have friends and contemporaries like that because there's just so much to know, so much to learn. And, you know, yeah. we're so lucky to have those resources out there uh, that educate yeah. us, you know, because we know a fair bit. But, boy, nothing, you know, not everything for sure. And Wow. Uh, yeah, we're, she's we're so uh, lucky. She's the best. Um, I'm going to head to Nashville this week. Um, one of my clients, Ann Wilson uh, from Heart. Uh, Ann Wilson has a, a new album coming that's absolutely amazing. But she's taping a uh, PBS Great Performances uh, in Nashville on Tuesday. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, to seeing that. So I'll, uh, I'll give you kind of a recap when I get back. Yeah, that's nice. Well, and, and I, I know you know this, uh, but that's, you know, Heart was a, a band that, that is from your neck of the woods, to say the least. And don't you just pinch yourself when you're sitting there chatting with, with someone who, who, you, you were, who was an idol for you? I mean, it's, that's the fun part of working in the business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, see, growing up in the Seattle area um, when I was young, she, they were my Led Zeppelin yeah. Um, and, uh, you and I have had a chance to talk to, you know, Ann and Nancy. And, um, one of the things I thought was interesting was like, Ann Wilson saw the Beatles live and she had this great quote and I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like, you know, she didn't want to sleep with the Beatles. She wanted to be the Beatles. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> she still has that amazing voice. And, uh, um, I just absolutely love uh, working with uh, Ann Wilson. So, and I, we, I've told told the story before that I saw them on their first tour uh, when I was still in high school, and uh, they were opening. Uh, Len, uh, Leonard Skinnerd was after them, and they blew all the bands off the stage on that first tour. They were just unbelievable. I remember just sitting here with my mouth open, going because yeah. I'd heard the songs on the radio, but I hadn't seen them live. Yeah. Oh my God, they were so and and are absolutely. so great live. Yeah. Yeah, the level of musicianship, songwriting, vocals, everything—they were the uh, the perfect storm. And before we kind of jump in this week, um, Glenn Peoples and I are recording uh, the last little bit for the Peter Case behind the set list. Oh yeah. Um, if you don't know, Peter Case has this long history of just fantastic songwriting. 
Um, and, and he has a documentary out called a million miles away. And it's not just about the plimsolls or, you know, his solo stuff. It's, it's the whole story. And there's so many interesting stories about his life and the bands he was in and busking and just everything. It, I, it was riveting. So it if you get a chance, documentary, it's yeah, a great documentary. Check it out. Yes. Yeah. Really great documentary worth the time. And, uh, yeah, great stuff. And hey, and the, a couple of the links that you posted uh, in the newsletter for some videos were just unbelievable. The the first one uh, sold out Ticketmaster and the resale racket, which was a Vice News piece. Man, yeah. I'm I'm not finished with that, but it is talk about riveting. Gosh, a great documentary, fascinating. A little you and I love hour. documentaries. Me and too. You turn, we do. You turned me on to so many good documentaries. It's nice that yeah. I got to turn you onto one for a change. And the, it's called Sold Out, like you said, Ticketmaster and the Resale Racket. Um, and I sent it to my friends, you know, at the Live Nation Ticketmaster side and some venues to see, you know, I, I like to get, you know, all sides, you know, mm -hmm. like Ricky Warwick saying, you know, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. And so I want to make sure that they're not missing anything, but I learned a lot from that. And what I found was fascinating was they had the gentleman who basically created the first series of bots that went up and, yes. you know, and, and a bot, for those that don't know, it's just a little piece of software that does a task. And this task was to get in and purchase these great seats, which in turn he would resell for a profit. And it was really interesting seeing behind the curtain at the mm -hmm. people who do that. Yes. I had no idea how that worked. It was super interesting. Yeah, really, really good. Uh, by the way, and I didn't, we didn't talk about this before we, we hit record, but I also, speaking of documentaries, there's a uh, Netflix documentary on Wham that is great. It's really good. I saw the preview for it. I haven't yeah. seen it. It's on it's Netflix. Good. It's, yes, it's on Netflix. It's really good. Yeah, really interesting. And it really kind of gives you an interesting peek into the dynamic between Andrew and George Michael and how important Andrew was. You know, he tends to get kind of short shrift for him. Yeah, that. you don't hear a lot about Andrew Ridgely, but. I would love to know how that dynamic started and how that happened. He comes out really seeming like just a really good guy. That Andrew, oh, cool. Terms, and, and, and how important his support was to George and kind of nurturing him. And, you know, when it was over, he was happy to, to, to let George bitter. go on. No, not at all. Not at all. No bitterness there. So really good. Really worth, worth the, um, I don't know, hour and a half and... Uh, it takes so again we love the documentaries and there's uh they should we, do a documentary on pete best uh you know from the beatles yes. um, i had dinner with him once and he today he's not bitter at all he he thinks uh you know he had that experience and he wouldn't have had the family and the wife that he has you know without you know suffering that adversity but he's he's thrilled that he had that and uh the stories he played more live shows with the Beatles than Ringo did. Yeah. And he has so many great stories and I was just honored to spend a little time with him. I remember when that dinner happened, you actually, I, I was invited to that and I couldn't make it. I, mm -hmm. I, I was still kicking myself and that was probably 20 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was the other video you had mentioned. There were a couple of links to videos. So there was that Ticketmaster and the resale racket we talked about, but there was also one called Examining the Rising Costs of Vinyl Production, and that was created by the Music Business Association. And for those that don't know the process and the costs involved, you and I have talked about this before, that we meet people within the industry that really don't know how a song is recorded, mixed, mastered, you know, delivered to a digital service provider or how a cassette or vinyl is made. And this is one of the best videos I've seen, not only just showing the process, but how costs have risen um, in that area. And I, I was super excited because there was a, a story you and I were talking about in, let's see, it was HypeBot. And the headline was, vinyl sales are up and disc makers cut the cost to manufacture by 35%. That grabbed my attention. Yeah. And so as I was reading that, they were talking to Tony Van Veen uh, from Disc Makers. And we've known Tony. He's a great guy, um, super smart guy, has a series of videos. And he's kind of our go-to guy when we want to talk about the physical configurations. And you and I were talking last week um, with Jamie Marconette, and he had told us that 
all of the physical configurations were up for in the mid-year report. Yes. So I wanted to talk to Tony about that, but I also wanted to talk about something that's near and dear to our hearts, which is, you know, what they talk about in this video, vinyl costs, and then also turnaround times. So let's take a listen to a bit of that conversation with Tony Van Veen. Tony, good to see you. Always a pleasure. Um, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> thank you, sir. Talk a bit about the current state of vinyl production. Nobody knows this better than you do, specifically costs and turnaround times versus, let's say, a year ago. There's been a massive shift in what's been happening in the vinyl industry in terms of driven mostly by capacity becoming available. You know, vinyl demand has outstripped supply by a huge margin for, for, for probably most of the last decade, right? I mean, when this vinyl surge started 10, 13 years ago, 15 years ago, people were literally digging old vinyl record presses out of basements and garages and <laughs> refurbing them. And, and with, the, with the rise in demand, that led to high prices, uh, long turn times, longer than six months. There was two years ago, I think, record labels had to give almost a year's notice of, of orders that they were going to want to put out. And so because of that, th this was kind of a, a, a label game, right? And and because labels can press, it can they, they have the ability and the professionalism to plan that release schedule, which a DIY independent artist, which is what we at Dismakers focus on primarily, the artist, once it's recorded and mixed, and mastered, they want it out, right? And and get it out quickly. So what's happened in the past couple of years with the sustaining demand and growth for vinyl, several companies have cropped up that have started manufacturing record presses again, which made it easier to add capacity to existing plants. And there are many plants that were started up over the past five, six years. So, I mean, there are now, I think 190 vinyl pressing plants around the world and more than, I don't know, more of almost 80 just in the US. Wow. So that has, that has opened up capacity. Uh, that has led to turn times coming down from 26 weeks, way down to 12 weeks, eight weeks, six weeks, uh, which is, which is which is workable, right? Yeah. For for labels certainly, and even for for DIY artists, it is workable. Yeah. Um, and so that's led to some opportunities for for DIY artists, uh, because up to now, as I mentioned, it's been a label game. Independent artists want vinyl. Vinyl is hot. Vinyl is hip. Vinyl sounds great. The user experience, right? Taking that record out of the jacket, dropping it onto the turntable. It's like a ritual. Uh, and, and we see it at this makers, like our vinyl page on our website gets twice the traffic of our most trafficked CD pages on the site, except vinyl orders are like 2% of our total orders because of price historically because of price. But now with capacity opening up, plants are saying, oh, you know what? We'll do 300, 200, 100 records, which is what independent artists are looking for. And, and I think this makers is uniquely suited to, to really kind of mainstream that and make vinyl affordable to independent artists today because we also print the jackets. We have the ability to get the word out through the marketing. We can scale the customer service and the and the album cover design, et cetera, because what we do is we, we deal with already with tens of thousands of artists a year for optical disc production for USBs and for and for vinyl. Yeah. So according to the recent Luminate mid-year report, all physical configurations are showing increases. What do you think that means for our industry? Well, it's interesting. I, I think what it says, I don't know what it means so much as what it says about our industry is that for, I think, typical independent artists, mid-level independent artists, emerging artists, streaming doesn't pay the bills. 
right? The current industry revenue model doesn't pay the bills. And I, I'm not a hater on streaming, but the reality is that if you as an artist want to make money today from your craft, you need something beyond streaming to drive revenue. And so the, the, the interesting thing is, right, we have 70 year old vinyl pressing technology that is like the hottest new thing today uh, and, and is actually important to artists surviving financially, economically from their craft. And of course, almost 40 year old optical disc technology with CDs, which also remains relevant in part because CDs are just so they're, they're so affordable to make a dollar or two and you you know, you got CDs out in the marketplace. And so it says the, the artists need physical. It also, beyond just the economics, it says something about the artist-fan relationship, right? The digital, the streams, just they're, they're great, but they're not great enough. They're not super fulfilling as a fan. I think the physical is meaningful. The connection to the physical product, the graphics, the packaging is special for a fan. And, and even more so if you're at a concert as a fan, right? And, and you buy the merch at the merch table and the artist is there and you get the autograph and the selfie. Now, now you're, you're a lifelong fan and, and it all revolves around the physical, the physical medium. Yeah. So it, it's, it's really cool. And Luminate talks about that and they talk about like how super fans drive, you know, a disproportionate yeah. amount of the revenue for artists. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Tony. I really appreciate it. Let's do this again. Great to chat. So interesting. So interesting. And uh, like you yeah. said, Disc Makers is such a great... And Disc Makers, I'm trying to remember how long they've been around. They've been around for a long time. And yeah. such yeah. leaders in that space. And, Absolutely. Uh, lovely to hear from him, for sure. Yeah, not only in the production of, you know, if you need CDs or vinyl or whatever you need, but also in the education side. Yeah. Um, sometime go on to YouTube and, and look up uh, Tony Van Veen. Um, he's just, uh, a great advocate for indie artists. Mm -hmm. He's super smart. So Tony, thank you so much for, uh, for joining our, our little show this week. That was cool. We certainly appreciate it. And Jay, you know, when we do the show every week, we, as we keep saying, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We could not do this without our sponsors. And we are so blessed to have fantastic yeah. sponsors, including HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform bands in town yeah speaking of bands in town they had an announcement this week uh, we've we've changed our numbers yes here a we little have bit. so now it's uh, over 80 million live music fans trust bands in town to get personalized concert alerts recommendations and messages from their favorite artists it's the number one artist services platform it connects over 585,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Indeed. And how about the Music Business Association? Uh, the Music Business Association creates the rooms in which the important conversations that shape our industry's future take place. Sure we do. know when we work together, our industry, your business, and your people will be stronger. Our membership represents every major segment of the global music business, including labels and distributors, music streaming, retail and wholesale, publishers and PROs, rights management and metadata, artist managers, tech and startups. The Music Business Association. Go over to musicbiz.org for more information. So big thanks. The Music Business Association. Hypebot and Bands in Town. Man, oh man, oh man. We totally appreciate your support. Yeah, we sure do. Every week. And speaking yes, of every week, I get to look into my screen here and see my good <laughs> buddy Jay Gilbert. He is a music industry consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with these little startups called Universal Music, Sony Music, and the Warner Music Group. Uh, thank you, brother. And uh, my friend over here is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Oh, so long ago, and uh, what a checkered history I have of uh, employment. 
or semi good experience man uh, it's it's good experience i was talking to a friend of mine about the music industry yesterday well it was sean rakowski um he used to be at uh, ada mm-hmm. where i first met him uh, one of my favorite people there um and now he works for bmg in between he ran a pressing plant he's just super knowledgeable but he's a music freak and one of the things we and we just had kind of a catch-up call yesterday and one of the things that he mentioned that i think is so true is that the more things change in this industry, the underlying business, it's really sort of the same in a lot of ways, Um, different configurations, different Mm -hmm. players, different platforms, but it's still very, very similar. So shout out to Sean Rutkowski. Uh, He he also sends out this really cool email from time to time to friends with just music he's discovered that's really cool. And uh, I, I appreciate that because we have similar tastes in music. I was joking with him one time and I said, I, I thought I was the only one that had good taste in music. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, and that's, you know, that is the beauty of working when you work in the business uh, is the ability to meet people sort of like, again, like-minded people and, and yeah. kind of people that you have sort of an instant connection with. And and the the major threat, of course, is music, and that's I, I I sure loved that side of you know heading into the office, sitting down, and somebody walking in and say, "You've got to listen to this. Have you heard this?" That is the best part of the business. Yeah, because you know it, it's that discovery and getting excited, whether you're 15 or 35 or 55, exactly. you know, you just it just it's so exciting. And so it's a common thread throughout our lives. And we've talked about this a lot. I don't know if I've ever asked you, did you ever know Gary Stewart who worked at uh, Rhino? I did not. I certainly knew who he was. And I have many friends who were friends with him, including you, Um, but I never um, got a chance to meet him. He was one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, And uh, you always felt better after you had coffee or lunch with him. You drove away just feeling inspired about music and discovery. And even when he was an executive at Apple Music, if he would meet someone, it it wouldn't be like, what do you do? It'd be like, what are you listening to? What do you like? And he had in his trunk of his car this crate of... CDs like he loved the new pornographers for example and there were a lot of bands that he just really loved and he would he would go to his trunk and pull out CDs and just give them to people that he met like you need you need to hear this yeah. and he had a thing called trunkworthy for a while like is it trunkworthy is it going to be in his trunk that he would give away and the last thing I'll say on Gary Stewart because sadly he's passed but he was one of my favorite people ever Um, He loved Elvis Costello. And when Elvis came to town, he would buy up a whole row and then just give them to friends. And so they all could go. And and Elvis said uh, some really kind words uh, about Gary after he passed. But uh, I am so thankful for people like you and for Gary in my life um, because you and I, before we even decided to do this podcast, we would meet fairly regularly just for lunch. And what would we do? Just talk about music and talk share music. share stories and and what we were listening to and uh, yeah that's that is the main thing that I sure loved about the music business was getting to know people that were the same as we are that just crazy passionate level and oh my goodness it was it's uh, and I will and I keep saying this all the time about you I remember when we started chatting uh, in our early you know when we first met over at Universal. And you mentioning you had, oh, I've got all those Beatle bootlegs. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. I'm going to be spending some time with this guy. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, back, uh, back in those old days, I collected any kind of live recordings I could get. And that, that kind of grew into bootlegs or like outtakes, B-sides, demos, and things like that. And, and it's not for everyone, especially when you talk about bands like the Beatles, Uh, I have friends of mine, they don't want to hear the stems. They don't want to hear the rough takes or any of that stuff. They just want to hear what they grew up on. Uh, You and I are a little bit different in that we just love that process and seeing how things come together. And then we'll jump into the stories. The last thing I'll say is you and I both love that Beatles documentary because of the fact that you could see Paul McCartney just dinking around on the piano or bass or something. And in your head, you're going, 
oh, that is going to become this song yes. on the next album, right? That yes. sort of thing. So, and that Beatles cool. documentary is Get Back, the Peter Jackson Get Back, which was yeah. previously known as Let It Be. And that is the most fascinating thing is that, as somebody described it, it is fascinating tedium that particular documentary, which is you see again that, you know, kind of the, the process with which they went through to create those, those songs and how fast they worked. And yeah. Oh, it's great. It but is didn't, great. Didn't you find let it be to be sort of depressing. And whereas this one is more uplifting and it's the Absolutely. same event, just it's all in the editing. You know, you take that it's footage the editing. and they yeah. edit it where it was joyful you know, yeah. so anyway, yeah, good it's stuff. worth watching if you haven't seen it. And uh, yeah, stick with it because it does kind of get tedious. But oh, my goodness, if you hang in there, it's a fantastic yeah. documentary. All right, Jay. Now, this, by the way, I don't think this has ever happened before. Uh, our first story <laughs> is from Music Technology Policy. It's Talking Merch Cut Blues, hashtag my merch. It was a guest post uh, by the artist Jackie Venson. Yeah. Uh, and we were going to, you and I were going to just kind of talk about it and, and, and read parts of it, but a great thing happened. Yeah. Well, I reached out to Jackie and she was so kind to send us um, her op-ed. This is her yeah. reading her op-ed. So w- without further ado, it's, this is a guest post, uh, music technology policy, you know, with Chris Castle that we talked about. He found this um, through a tw- uh, Twitter thread and a Reddit post, and he got her permission to use it on, uh, on his website. You and I read it, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, and it's something near and dear to our hearts. And I'll just read you one quote, and then we'll let Jackie take it away. She said that venues and promoters have become more aggressive about forcing artists to subsidize the costs of their operations while also moving in on artist merch revenue and lowering the guarantees paid to artists. And we see this with a lot of our artists today and she's doing something about it. So without further ado, let's, let's listen to Jackie Venson um, with her op-ed talking merch cut blues hashtag my merch. This has been such a whirlwind year for me, and this season of touring has been no different. It's shaping up to be one of my most successful tours ever. But with that said, I am disturbed by the new normal that's developing in the touring world, and I want to talk about it. Because I don't think that fans are aware of what musicians, especially fully independent musicians, are dealing with now. So uh, buckle up, another manifesto is incoming. Being an independent musician today means being a small business owner as well as an artist. On tour, I have to pay for and manage show marketing, travel expenses, production costs, including room fees at venues, more on this in a minute, and band member wages, as well as all of the other day-to-day costs and hassles of being an artist. From writing, producing, and manufacturing new material to juggling social media and pitching and engaging with traditional media like radio. It's a lot. And even when tours were more lucrative for artists, they were still expensive, stressful propositions. There's a reason why there's so many classic songs about the simultaneous thrill and misery of being on the road. As a fan, when you think about tours, you probably imagine it works like this. An artist gets booked at a venue for an agreed-upon fee or guarantee. The venue and promoter split the ticket sales with the artist. The venue takes in concession and beverage sales and splits that with the promoter and the artist takes in merch. Sometimes it really is that simple. But for years, venues and promoters have been been getting more and more aggressive about forcing artists to subsidize the costs of their operations while also moving in on artists' merch revenue and also lowering the guarantees paid to the artists. That aggression went into overdrive after the pandemic, even though a number of major venue and promoter groups like Live Nation actually saw record-breaking profits after the pandemic. By any measure, this has been my biggest year as an artist. I did a historic sold-out residency at Antone's at the start of the year. I've gone viral on TikTok and YouTube several times. I played the TikTok party at South by Southwest, and then I even performed at the CMT Awards live on television. And my tour dates this year have taken me to new places and new crowds, that I, and I can see my audience expanding in real time. But at the same time, it's getting harder and harder for me to make a profit on the road because the touring ecosystem is becoming more hostile towards artists. And if this is hard for me... What hope is there for any artists who are early on in their careers, trying to start their first tours? What I and many other artists are seeing 
is predatory behavior by venues and larger national regional promoters who are happy to exploit artists while also claiming that people need to support live venues if they want to save live music. More and more, venues are requiring artists to give the venues a cut of merch sales in order to get booked, even though they often provide no help with merch. Many of us have our own merch person, our own tables, our own displays, so these venues are literally getting money for nothing. On top of that, more and more venues are increasing their room fees, a cost that is factored into the show before any profit can be shared with the artists. The room fees are now often bundled with assorted production costs, ranging from the wages of sound and light technicians to door staff to security. Venues expect artists to pay for every aspect of their organization, even though we're only usually playing one event there, and the staff is as vital and common to the operation as the stage itself. But you know what makes this especially ridiculous? These venues believe that we artists should share the burden of their operating costs, yet many of them do not believe that they should have to share the profits of their bar or concessions. It's not only exploitative and unreasonable, it's short-sighted and actively harmful to the music ecosystem. And if we as an artist community don't speak out against it more, it's only going to get worse, especially since the venues are banding together to get themselves tax breaks like the recent liquor tax refund in Texas, which will reward $100,000 to music venues that meet certain guidelines none of which have anything to do with abiding by fair treatment and payment of the musicians themselves. It goes without saying that the one defining trait of a music venue is that it features live music, and there is no live music without musicians themselves. As musicians, we should be prioritized and valued by venues, not exploited and marginalized. These venues simply do not exist without us, and it's time they start remembering that. My peer, Cadence Weapon actually started an initiative last year called Hashtag My Merch, asking venues and promoters to voluntarily drop their merch cuts. And I think it's an amazing movement that you can all support if you're looking for ways to help outside of just buying directly from artists. Well, that was awesome to hear from her. Thank you, Jackie, for doing Thank that. Thank you, this. Jackie. That's, that's Very fantastic. Cool. And I was at, uh, I went to see last night, I saw um, Cowboy Junkies up in Santa Barbara mm-hmm. at the the lovely Libero Theater. If you're in Southern California, you, if, if you haven't been to Libero, it's celebrating its 150th anniversary. It's been around forever wow. in Santa Barbara. And uh, it only seats about 400. So it's a fun place to see shows. And, you know, there's no bad seats in the house. But I was looking at their merch table and wondering exactly how, what what the situation was there at the Libero. Um, and they had, of course, vinyl records and merch, and it seemed to be selling rather well. I saw a lot of people sitting down with their vinyl album copies of the new record. So, um, so but, you know, it's, it is so tough out there to be an artist and to, and to be navigating just to the entire merch process is a challenge because that's, you know, that's a, we all get into music for the music, not for the business side of things sometimes. So for an artist to kind of learn how to just navigate the merch thing in general, but now all these challenges of everybody wanting a a piece of the pie. And if you get a chance to watch that vice video um, on, on ticket resellers, they talk a lot about that pie situation and people mm-hmm. taking cuts of the pie. And then in the case of, of ticket service fees, them, them just baking a bigger pie. So more service fees and because you know, more people wanting to cut. And that's, again, what's kind of happening with merch. Yeah. And, it's, and, and uh, many other it's things. And, and yeah. thank you, Jackie, for shining a light on that. Thank you for hashtag uh, my merch. And before we kind of move on, um, I've been listening to Jackie's music for a long time. Uh, a mutual friend of ours, Ryan Sloan, um, used to work with her and he turned me on to her music and she's a force of nature. Um, she's amazing. She is an incredible singer, uh, songwriter, guitarist. I mean, she can play like crazy and it's so fun to watch her play. She's got a smile that'll light up a room and, um, she's had, you know, as she mentioned, she's had some recent successes. She'll continue to have successes. But if you haven't listened to much uh, Jackie Venson music, check her out on, on YouTube or your DSP of choice. It's uh, uh, it's absolutely phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Really, really talented. And uh, what a treat to have her come and kind of do a little uh, little over a little overview of her. Op ed piece, yeah, for yeah, op ed, very cool. Awesome. So big thanks. Uh, the next one uh, from Music Business Worldwide. People really like music, but the music industry lets everyone else capture the value. 
And we talk about this sometimes, how much we absolutely uh, love Tim Ingham over, he's a founder of Music Business Worldwide, and this is basically based on his podcast. And uh, I I go and check out anything uh, that Music Business Worldwide does, but especially this podcast, because it's so well done. He has such great uh, guests, and we always learn something. And, And this time he had Travis Rosenblatt on, um, who runs this company called Meddling. Um, and uh, it's basically a platform on the A&R side for scouting mm-hmm. and research. It's super, super cool. And um, I'll jump in really quickly with, you know, the first part of it that really grabbed me is, is Travis said that I think we have to have a better understanding of what data can and cannot do or what you should be using it for. First of all, it's descriptive. Uh, it'll tell you what's happening diagnostic. It'll tell you why it happened. Um, his company Metal says it's, it, that it's even predictive. It can tell you what's likely to happen next. But it is decidedly not prescriptive. I'm not going to tell you what you should do about the information. I thought that was really interesting. It'll help you to get all this information and help you, um, but it's not going to tell you w- what you need to do with it. Right. And he goes on to say, I think the music industry is getting better and better at understanding context. One song that maybe accompanies a cute dance or something online that has a moment does not necessarily translate into an artist career. Unless you have a vision for that artist in the same way you would for an artist that you found at, say, the Mercury Lounge, it doesn't mean it's something you should sign. And yeah, you know, that's really the A&R challenge. And uh, was it last year at Music Tectonics where they had that, that yeah. panel? You were on it, actually. You I hosted met, you were, that panel. You hosted, yeah. that's right. It was an A&R panel that you hosted. And it was interesting hearing A&R executives in the year 2023 talking yeah. about, or that was 2022, I think. Uh, but talk, no, it was earlier this year, talking about how, what, how the job has changed and yet how, it's also, how, how it's also stayed the same, though, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, because... There, there are people who just look at these analytic platforms to sort of get that next viral hit. But as we've reported, that's really slowed down because, you know, uh, a bunch of streams on one viral moment does not a career make. And one of the things that we pulled out of this really great uh, podcast and article, um, he said that one of the criticisms we hear about digital A&R scouting tools like meddling is that they can lead to labels, management companies, publishers, et cetera, spending too much time on novelty acts, a song or track that explodes from an artist that will never be seen or heard again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the challenge, isn't it really? You know, it's like you, you want to get excited because you see people are excited about something and you think that might translate again to a long-term success in the industry. And that's not necessarily yeah. the case. And w- whatever the number is, you know, it, it probably hasn't changed. Maybe it's gotten worse, you know, whatever, uh, you know, when, when, when a label signs X artists, you know, call it 10, you're lucky if you break one, you're really lucky. Yeah. And, you know, mm. those things really haven't changed that much. So wherever you're getting the data in terms of what to sign, it still is a challenge to make it stick and to make it last. And I yeah. think that's, you know, we, we grew up in an artist development era. And I think it's uh, it goes through phases when people kind of forget that, yeah, we're really looking for long term artists here in this in this game. And yeah, it's tough. Yeah. And some uh, aren't. You know, some are not looking for that long-term gain, um, which is very short-sighted. But the reason for that is, you know, we we talk about this all the time, the pro rata uh, versus user-centric, market-centric, you know, because of the fact that these labels are rewarded by jacking up a little bit of market share versus, you know, um, that user-centric model, that gets them to focus on some of these viral moments. But we've also reported on a lot of these stories lately where it's not working out well for these labels to bring in artists that maybe haven't played a live show. Maybe they haven't even finished that viral track uh, that's blowing up and they're looking at something with a little bit more uh, artist development. And that's why these platforms like meddling are, are so important 
And, you know, one of the platforms that, that we use a lot is Vibrate for that mm-hmm. same reason that you can see not only who's having a viral moment, but you can kind of take a look at artists at different levels. Like show me an artist that has this many uh, monthly listeners, um, maybe that isn't signed yet or one in this region that's overperforming. And there's so many different ways to dice and slice the data. But what I love about this piece is that even these people who claim, you know, that they've got these wonderful ears and they don't need to look at the data, they can just listen and hear. Um, he said that one of the criticisms we hear about digital A&R scouting, uh, oh wait, no, I already read that part. It's the part where he talks about he was basically kicked out of a, oh, here it is. Five years ago, one of the major record companies in the UK kind of, you know, kicked me out of the room and said, I hear hits in my sleep. I I have ears made of gold. How dare you suggest that I need to use data? Well, I think the smart A&R people, and this is what I learned from interviewing A&R people for that panel at Music Tectonics, is that it's a balance. It's not just data, and it's not just listening with your ears, and it's not just looking for that viral moment. It's looking at going to see, is there a line, line around the block to see them play? Are they mature enough to handle success? You know, is there more than just one moment here? You you balance all that data and all of that thing, and you use that intelligence. Yes, and he says, I understand that in- instinct, but even that person has now come back around and said, well, I guess as long as it's presenting me things that I should listen to, it's useful. But it's not going to replace gut instinct, and it's not going to replace artist development. And he says it's simply leveraging the audience that already exists out there that's listening to things that maybe they found before you have. And this yeah. this kind of concept is really like the whole the whole uh, and a sort of overarching thing about AI, which is, you know, you're not using... or it, the proper way to use AI is not necessarily to have it decide something for you, but present things and, and in a way that's a much more time effective way of you doing your job. Yeah. And I think that's, again, what, 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 I, what I'm excited about AI about. It's not copying Drake's voice. It's, you know, doing things that are just more time efficient in our daily lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. One of the biggest topics on the lips of the music industry today is that idea of fandom. We talked about it with Jamie Marconette on the Illuminate thing. You and I talk about how important fandom is to the industry um, right now. But, uh, you know, one person might be listening to a stream and maybe doing so uh, with far more interest and passion than somebody who may be listening to another stream. So whether or not those two streams necessarily are worth the same or whether, you know, example A would be willing to pay more when it comes to platforms themselves. You know, um, Tim was asking, do you think that maybe we're moving into an era where specialist fans or more in-depth fans of certain artists or certain genres may actually benefit from being on different platforms for different types of music listeners? And I thought that was really interesting because we've talked about super fans. We've talked about, you know, kind of the Patreon uh, OnlyFans model of subscription. And right now, the the DSPs pretty much have the same 100 million or so tracks. And I think Sherry Hu a while back posted this, you know, like screen grabs of all these different DSPs, you know, their homepages, and they kind of look the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said, he said, you know... He said, if, if everything is available for free at everyone's fingertips, that's a great value proposition for lean back listeners. But you then also have to have a large you, you but but you then also have a large number of, as we talk about, super fans who are underserved. And while those super fans may be a small portion of the market, they're incredible, of course, a very important part of the market. Yeah. And that's kind of true. Like you and I were talking about earlier, you know, we wanted to hear everything, every single thing, the 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 minutiae of, in this case, the Beatles or whatever, name your band. And that, by the way, is where YouTube comes in. That's where you find that wild and wacky stuff that you can't find on the on the mm-hmm. DSPs on that. But, but again, that you know, I think it's it's uh, it's so important to to super serve those super fans if you can. Oh, I think that is probably the most important thing uh, we've been shouting from the rooftops, and it's definitely highlighted in in this piece is that super fans are really underserved. You know, it may be a small portion of the market, but it's a very important part of the market. And I think that those tastemakers, 
you know, who are able to incubate and turn up a lot of things that were worthwhile. Um, the, Tim said in this that I, I don't think it takes that many people to break a new artist that crosses over, but they don't have the ability to do that anymore. So streaming services don't care about converting fans for artists. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, you know, as 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 this market has matured, it it's interesting to kind of think about now where the opportunities are and where where it's the, the current market is kind of falling down, and um, it's it, it is well time to be talking about this, and it's really yeah. interesting to to see kind of you know this movement, a slow movement as it is, of you know what's next, what is the next hap- evolution wise, what is next in the streaming business and yeah. how do we, how do we accommodate both profitability? Also, how do we kind of, if you're, if you're a label, you probably have the goals of artist development. Yeah. And, and if you're, if you're a fan, how do we, how do we make sure that, you know, we're not leaving money on the table basically. And, and, yeah. not and I think we all know that we are, you know, when it yes. comes to super serving those super fans and, uh, I think, you know, the last thing I'll say on this, this piece, they did talk about AI a little bit and we won't go deep into it, but I thought it was interesting. He said, it's basically a fancy auto tune setting right now. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. You know, the immediate implication is you see companies like universal, you know, they're grouping AI generated tracks with DIY distributed tracks to suggest that, you know, they're the same and that everything's, you know, not majors and is less valuable you know, only 4% of the music that's kind of being uploaded uh, every week is from the majors. There's so much uh, indie and DIY stuff. And he says that maybe they should be churning out a better product that can compete with rain sounds. But he also thinks that there's probably a real conversation that maybe Spotify should only be sort of a major distributor platform. And, you know, we could focus and revitalize communities like SoundCloud in Bandcamp, he just thinks that that would be a much better funnel for those artists. But it was just a fantastic conversation. All of those music business worldwide uh, podcasts are great conversations. Um, I've said it before, you know, Tim Ingham, I'm not sure he's not a robot. Human. Yeah. I mean, he's like <laughs> flawless. He makes no mistakes good. and he's yeah. just so articulate and so intelligent. So, uh, our, our uh, shout out kudos to Tim and his team over at Music Business Worldwide. Um, you guys are the best. For both the podcast and the website. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And our last story, Jay, is from Music Business Worldwide. Music's addicted to the monthly active user metric. Yeah. But it tells us nothing. <laughs> right. And this, this piece was written by uh, Eamon Ford. I had a chance to speak with uh, Eamon over Zoom uh, a while back. We've, we've covered a lot of his uh, stories uh, for Music Business Worldwide, but he's also, also an author. And I bought his book, The Final Days of EMI, Selling the Pig. Um, he's also got a book called Leaving the Building, um, basically about sort of, I don't know, heritage... Yeah. Uh, catalog artist, which is such, it's so timely today with companies like, you know, KKR and BMG and primary wave and all of these people dealing in intellectual property rights. And it's a thick book. It's, it's a, it's a big read, but it's so well done. So anyway, just a shout out to uh, Eamon Ford um, writing this piece for music business worldwide. Right. It starts with, he says, it has become so widespread, so normalized as to be taken as watertight evidence. Yet the MAU or monthly active users as a means of measurement are simply grand obfuscation in motion. Mm-hmm. As such, they should be laughed out of the room. Yet in their asininity... By the way, he uses very big words. Uh, They persist and they grow like Japanese knotweed that someone is trying to convince you is cherry blossom. They are as such much more than just idiotic. They are diseased and dangerous. And we talk about this, right? You and I talk about all these reports every week that talk about MAUs. Um, So major social platforms and DSPs still commonly cite MAUs, monthly average users, as proof of their reach, engagement, and growth. But they offer nothing of the sort. They are intended to keep investors happy, to keep the market cap ticking upwards, to show company over-delivering on its promises. 
Yeah, he says as a measurement term, there is no unified definition of what a monthly of what monthly average users are actually are and what they actually cover. This dubious lack of standardization means that companies are blithely free to use MAU to mean whatever best suits them, which of course They do. The malfeasance behind MAU as a measurement system is widespread in its use and egregious in its intent. (laughs) Uh, Most definitions of MAU hold that someone just needs to visit a website or open an app once in a given month, and immediately they are counted as an active user. Each of the three component parts, monthly, active, and user, are doing an awful lot of heavy lifting here, Um, but they're mostly deflections, like a carefully cropped photo of a crowd suggesting a lot more people turned up to the event than actually did. He says, why in an age of real-time data are companies still trying to insist that a person logging in once a month makes them active as a user. It is utterly redundant as a metric and there is primary and there and is pri- and is there primarily to bulk up numbers. It is deeply desperately unsound and unstable. It is the statistical equivalent of building a house where half the bricks are shreddies and shreddies is our, our wheat checks by the way like that that cereal <laughs> like shredded wheat Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, if you watch Ted Lasso, there's uh, great episodes with with him doing uh, that breakfast. Um, the same applies to monthly listeners on platform like Spotify. You know, despite having its fan first program, where its entire selling point to artists and record labels is that it absolutely knows which listeners are there from dawn to dusk playing music by a favorite artist. There's no nuanced segmentation when it comes to list listing monthly listeners. That's easy for you to say. Uh, you know, and, and that, you know, he's not trying to call out, um, Spotify, you know, for example, but he just says that that, that practice is endemic across all digital platforms. Right. He says Spotify absolutely has the data to hand that, uh, that shows just how engaged its users are. That is not, that it is not choosing to make public these tiers of listening is not by accident. It is entirely by design. And he says, I'm not wishing to single out just Spotify for this because the practice is endemic across all digital platforms. It's just that Spotify has a specific tool that is entirely based on ranking multiple levels of engagement. This is, however, never for public use, only for publicity use. Yeah, I never thought of it like that uh, before. And you and I talk about our decoder ring and all the different acronyms and abbreviations (laughs) and all of those things that the music industry um, throws at you, you know, ARPU and, you know, average revenue per user and, and some of these things. And we just we've become accustomed to seeing them in these reports. And I hadn't really even thought about monthly average users or monthly active users. Um and how it can be a little bit misleading. So a really interesting look at something that uh, I think a lot of us just take for granted. And uh, again, uh, super uh, um, shout out to uh, Eamon Ford uh, for his reporting. Always, always well done. Well done indeed. But it also brings up an interesting point, which is so no matter what industry you're in, you know, there are just sometimes there are just things you just that are there and you kind of just assume that they're important or they're right. And sometimes you need to kind of step back and look at everything you, you, you contemplate and whether it's still, it's still viable in terms of whatever you're using it for. And I think it's, it's easy, you know, and I remember, you know, like you kind of, when you're doing artist development, you know, you kind of said, okay, we have to do a video here. We have to do this or do that. And then, then sometimes you kind of say, well, why? Do I really need to do that now? And and kind of reassessing your tools in your tool chest sometimes yeah. is a very valuable practice to do and, and yeah. make sure it's still worthwhile, whatever and that you, is. And you and I are so fortunate that we have people like Eamon Ford and Chris mm-hmm. Castle and Will Page and Glenn Peoples and Tim Ingham and the, you know Keith Joplin. The list goes on and on and on. Tatiana Sirisano. We, we have so many of these people who it's their job to sort of look at these trends look at what's going on in the industry and they all have a gift of being able to pull things out that we just assumed were a certain way yeah. and and kind of shed some light on it and it's just a a joy each week for you and I to kind of treasure hunt and not only find the articles for your morning coffee the newsletter but then like you mentioned at the very beginning of the show 
it is such a challenge to decide, like, what are we going to talk about this week? Because it literally is an embarrassment of riches. And we could do this podcast uh, every day. Um, yes. And still have new things to talk about. But, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. We, be- before we say goodbye, I wanted to just mention that we have um, another um, kind of special episode that's mm-hmm. dropping soon with uh, Will Page that I'm really excited about. And we're coming up on our third anniversary and um, we've got some surprises for our audience there too. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we've got some good stuff for you. Yes, and boy, we certainly appreciate it. Big thanks to the Music Business Association, Hype Bot, and Bands in Town for helping us do the show every week. Big thanks to my brother Jay. And for you, the listener, as Jay mentioned, we certainly appreciate you checking us out every week. And it does not go unnoticed, nor does it go unappreciated. We, uh, we think about it every day and are appreciative for that. So on behalf of Jay and myself, big thanks. We'll see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.